So for most of us who go through school, exams are the big blight on our existence. I mean, particularly when you're in college, even high school, it's fun to socialize with your friends, sports, okay, but exams can be a real problem. Now, I did not go to my REACH school for college. I went to a, a Christian school, and it, normally, I know, I, I did re- relatively well. It wasn't a big stress. But at my school, you had to have exams not only after each semester, but at the end of your program, you had to have an exam in your major field, a cumulative exam, to make sure you could matriculate, or pass, you know, uh, graduate. Now, particularly, it was essential to do well if you wanted honors. You could squeak through if you just wanted to pass. And I was doing uh, New Testament studies, so it was a Greek exam. And it's our material you've covered. And we had covered the Gospel of John, which is the easiest Greek in the New Testament. So I sit down to take this exam. and says, you know, turn to John 8. And I, I turned to the text, and I started translating. And I'm thinking, I can't, you know. Some of it you recognize, you ran, recognize random words because you read the English Bible a lot. And I'm trying to think of, you know. And I just, the, the Greek was just awful. And I'm... You know, sitting there repenting for not having studied more, asking God for mercy, and I'm just really in distress. I squeak, you know, I, I, I got through, two hours later, I stumble out of there, and I said to my friends, what was that? And they said, yeah, wasn't it easy? <laughs> and I was at the top of the class, and these guys weren't, and I'm thinking, What happened? So I went back to my room and I looked up the text and sure enough, John 8 was easy. I had been translating Mark 8, which I had never seen before. (laughs) Ah, misery. So exams can be distressing, even if you're good at them. Now, this past week, Irene and I had an unusual experience. we had some friends that we've had for 40 years, that I had 40 years ago. When I was in ministry, a ministry like Karis, when I was in seminary, and I was in ministry, I was 23 years old, I was serving in a ministry uh, like a seminarian, like we have here, like Aaron Chan, who's now at the retreat, he was our seminarian. I was serving in ministry like Karis. 1975, I met these friends. And then they supported us while we were overseas for 16 years. And they lived in New York, and so every time we came back, we'd come stop by and see them. But then they moved to Texas. And I don't mean to be offensive, but I have no real reason to go to Texas except to see these two people. And so we never got to Texas. So we haven't seen them for 25 years. Now, we get their occasional circular. And I, when I get a circular, I send back a quick email. So they, he has reached early retirement. And they're taking a round-the-country tour to touch base with all their friends. They drove from Texas to South Carolina, eventually made it as far north as Boston. And we caught up with each other. You know, about what's all that's been going on in the last 25 years, really, some of the stuff that's been going on in the last 40 years. And it quickly drives home that the biggest tests we face are never in the classroom. It may just seem like that when we're young. But the biggest tests we face are in life. You know, between the ages of 23 and 25, when I knew them, life was golden. You know, we were all young. 
I mean, one of my grandfathers had died in ancient history. I, you know, I didn't, wasn't that close to him. And, you know, we were comfortable. We were supported by our parents financially. Uh, we were just getting out of school. The, our careers looked like golden in front of us. We were dating and all that was the initial thrill of all of that. And then you get married and you go through a career with ups and downs. You have children and raise them through their ups and downs. You see your parents die and, and inevitably difficulty hits. At the very least, it tests your faith. At the more severe moments, it tempts you to give up your faith. Now, Jesus was going through a microcosm, a compressed sort of event like that in this passage today, Matthew chapter 4. And we want to look at it to, to see what kind of temptation that Jesus went through. I want to alert you that the real point of this is not to tell us how to go through our temptations. This passage is not about us. This passage is really about Jesus and the temptation he went through. So let's look at it together. Now, backing up just a little bit, what we've seen so far, Matthew 1 and 2, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament. God's promises to Abraham, Jesus is the fulfillment. God's promises to David, Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the incarnate one, God coming in the flesh. There's the cosmic Jesus. There's something supernatural about Jesus. He's the king, challenging, ultimately, Herod, Archelaus, and any other king in the first century. He's the true Israelite, the one who walks in Israel's path. He migrated, his family migrated to Egypt, and then God drove, brought them out of Egypt in an exodus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the historic promise to, to Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophetic promises. Israel was so discouraged later in its history through exile and return, and disappointing return, and then through occupation by foreign armies, they were so discouraged that the prophets no longer promised them a better life now. Well, what the prophets promised them was, at some point in the future, God will return and intervene. And God will send his spirit. So that God will intervene and raise up Israel, and that God will send his spirit to transform his people so that they obey him. So God will fulfill his promises... And God will transform his people so that they respond to him, reciprocate with love and devotion and worship. And Matthew 3 says, Jesus is the fulfillment of those prophetic promises. John the Baptist says he's the coming Lord. John the Baptist says he'll give the Spirit. And so that brings us up to today's passage. Jesus is the fulfillment of the historic promises to Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophetic promises. And now, oddly enough, Jesus is identified as Son of God and heads in, into temptation. We've always got to ask, why did the author describe, why did Matthew put this account here? Or why did he develop it the way he developed it? He's got a point to make. This is not just plain history as if A happened and B happened and C happened and he's just sitting there like writing down a travelogue, you know, a diary day by day. He's got a theological point to it. One of the points here, we, and the one we're going to focus on is Jesus' identity as Son of God. Now, I think we would like this passage to be about how we can overcome temptation. 
we would like this passage to be about the three keys to overcoming temptation so that we could leave here. And the next time we're tempted to some kind of sin, then, boom, we got the three keys and we would never sin again. Yeah, that's an overstatement of any passage in Scripture. But whatever any passage of Scripture teaches us about, that's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is about Jesus as Son of God. And it's remarkable that though we know the language, we have no idea what it means. What does it mean for Jesus to be Son of God? Remember, there's two titles. A lot of us would know two titles for Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man. What do those titles mean? And people will tell you, okay, Jesus was divine and he was human, so Son of God means he was God's Son, he was divine. And Son of Man, well, he was human, so Son of Man means he was like us, he was incarnate. Uh, You know, the Son of God incarnate in the flesh, Son of Man, he's divine and he's human. Not at all. And it's quite remarkable that if these are two major titles used for Jesus, that typically we don't know what they mean. So, so even if we want this passage to be about our daily life and how to overcome temptation, and it's not, and that, mm, that could be a little bit disappointing, at least coming out of here we should understand what it means to say Jesus is the Son of God. Because that's what this passage is about. Notice in, in chapter 4, uh, when Satan challenges him, if you are the Son of God, 4, 3 to 4, if you are the Son of God, And then verse uh, 6, if you are the Son of God. This is about Jesus and what it means for him to be Son of God. And and somehow, for Jesus to be Son of God ties in with his temptation somehow. So what we've got to do is figure out what's the correlation between Jesus being Son of God and temptation. Let me set... Oh, wait. The the sermon has two parts. We're going to look at three parameters... And then we're going to look at three temptations. Three parameters. Three contexts of meaning for understanding what the title Son of God means. What does it mean for him to be Son of God? Three parameters we're going to look at. The first is this. Ah, you remember I told you I studied Greek, so I'm going to give you a Greek word. It doesn't matter. Just take my word for it. If you don't take my word for it, then you can look it up. So I'll give you the Greek word in case you don't trust me. The Greek word is pedazo. It means two things. It means test, and it means tempt depending on the context. So notice chapter 4. How does this account begin? Jesus, chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There's actually two things going on here. This is a temptation by the devil, but it's also a test from God. God is testing Jesus as Satan tempts Jesus. God is doing something positive, although disciplinary and difficult in Jesus' life, at the same time as Satan is using that to do something malicious in Jesus' life. This is both a test and a temptation. We need to ask, why? Why is God testing while Satan tempts. The second parameter is this. This this event comes right after Jesus' baptism. Why? Why does it come here? Remember Matthew chapter uh, 3? What happens at Jesus' baptism? The Spirit descends on Jesus. And what does God say? What does the voice from heaven say? This is my beloved Son, 
with whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. The baptism identifies Jesus as Son of God, and Satan immediately comes to him in temptation and says, if you really are Son of God, if you really are Son of God, so you see, this temptation is really about Jesus' claim, Jesus' identity as the Son of God. Somehow, the temptation is designed to test or to disprove the claim that he's the Son of God. They're connected. And the third parameter is this. Israel, follow this because it gets a little complicated. Israel in the Old Testament is called the Son of God. Take a look at, or or listen while I read from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses uh, 2 and 5. Here's what God says about about Israel. In Deuteronomy, where is Israel in Deuteronomy? They're in the wilderness. What does God say about them? Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and test you. To test you. To know what was in your heart. Whether or not you would keep his commands. Know then, in your heart, that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. See what Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 to 5 is saying. Is that it's linking these notions that in the wilderness... God is testing them through those deprivations they suffered in order to find out whether or not Israel will be his faithful son. The wilderness is a place where God tests his son to see if the son will be faithful. And so Jesus goes into the wilderness for a test because he's the son to see if he's going to be faithful. And again, Hosea Hello. Again in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. Hear this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. So, so Israel is in the wilderness. God has brought Israel out of Egypt. Out of e- When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called Israel my son. I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. So Israel in the wilderness is God's son. And as Israel faces deprivations, it turns away from God. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away from me. So here's what's really going on here. Uh, The question is, is Jesus going to be faithful where Israel was not? Israel was God's son and in the wilderness faced temptation, testing, turned away from God. Now, Jesus has just been identified as God's son. And he's going to go in the wilderness. He's going to be tempted. Will he prove himself to be God's son or not? Let me help you concretize this. What's the correlation between being son and being obedient, being son and being faithful? Now, any of you who have a Confucian background 
or are in touch with your ethnic history, understand Confucius. What's the key expectation of a son in Confucianism? Or of a child, but Confucianism is more preoccupied with sons than daughters. But what's the key expectation of a son in Confucianism? By the way, you realize, of course, sons are more important than daughters. Sons are the epitome of the importance. Uh, remember in Confucian relationship, sons are more important than spouses. The father-son relationship is more important than the husband-wife relationship in Confucianism. And what's the key expectation of a son? See? Feel your piety. Uh, Confucius said, here's where you know a faithful son. Three years after his father dies, that son still does everything the way his father taught him. He's not only faithful to his father when the father's alive, he's faithful to the father after the father's dead. And so this is the test for Jesus. He's just been identified as God's son. And now here's the test that God's putting him through. An adaptation that Satan's putting him through. Will this son be faithful to me? Israel was not. Will this son be faithful? And we see the parallel. In the, as we turn to the three temptations, those are the three parameters. And basically the three parameters come down to this. Will Israel be well, Israel proved faith, unfaithful as a son. Will Jesus be the faithful son that Israel was not? Is he truly the son of God? That has to be demonstrated. And it's demonstrated by him being filial to the Father, even through deprivation. And so these are the three temptations. You know, the three temptations that Israel went through, that parallel somewhat to what Jesus is going through, the temptation of hunger, the temptation of facing death, the temptation of self-glorification. And so there's a parallel that Matthew's drawing. There's a parallel that exists in the event that Matthew's highlighting. So we can see that Jesus was effective and faithful where Israel was not. And we see these three temptations parallel. Uh, the, the temptation itself is a little bit different. But the response to that temptation is parallel. So Israel suffered hunger. Remember? Before they had the manna, they suffered hunger. And they call out to God better that we go back to Egypt. God, you don't care about us. They grumble against Moses. They grumble against God. And then Jesus' first temptation, verses, four, verses 3 to 4, the tempter came to him and said, oh, sorry, verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And what was Jesus' response? His response comes from Deuteronomy, reflecting on Israel in the wilderness. And Jesus responded to Satan with the same words that Israel should have responded in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He, is written. he, he wrote, he answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 3, describing Israel in the wilderness. It's what Israel should have said and done. Not grumbled, but trusted God. Jesus refuses to grumble in the face of hunger, and he trusts the word of God. And the second temptation for Israel, they're thirsty, they cry out, we are going to die of thirst. They accuse Moses and God of not caring for them. And in the wilderness, 
Jesus faces a different temptation, but he answers the way Israel should have answered. They suffered thirst that they thought was going to kill them. In this case, Satan turns to Jesus and says, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Risk your life. Israel said, God, you're going to kill us. Satan says to Jesus, risk your life. Because God has promised. Do you trust God? God has promised you're not going to die. Psalm 91, Satan quotes the scripture. You're not going to die. God's promise. No harm will overtake you. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, Satan quotes. And Jesus replies the way Israel should have replied. Do not test the Lord your God. And the third temptation. Moses goes up to Sinai and meets with God. And the people are without Moses. Moses is their conduit to God. And the people are without Moses. They don't have Moses. They don't have God. They panic. Who's going to look after us? There's no presence of God here. And so they make an idol in the absence of God. And then Satan, in similar fashion, comes to Jesus and says to him in verses 8 to 10, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the... Remember, Moses was on a high mountain. Now, the devil takes Jesus to a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he says, if you bow down and worship me. Is Jesus going to be the faithful son of God? He replies as Israel should have. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. The point of all of this is that Jesus is tested and he's tempted. Tested by God and tempted by Satan because he is the Son of God. If he truly is the Son of God, then he will pass the test and he will overcome the temptation. And that's the message. That Jesus is called Son of God and he overcomes hunger. He overcomes the threat of death. He overcomes the invitation to self-glorification and worships God alone. Jesus is the true Son of God. And then what do we read in Matthew chapter 4, verse 11? Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Why does Matthew put this little note? The devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Remember what Satan had said in quoting Matthew? What Satan had said in quoting Psalm 91? He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan quoted that verse. And Matthew says at the end, you know, it is true. Because when Satan left him, then the angels came and ministered to him. God did command his angels concerning Jesus to guard him in his ways. The angels did lift him up and minister to him so that he would not strike his foot against the stone. Psalm 91 goes on to say, which Satan overlooked, because he loves me, says the Lord, because my son loves me, I will rescue him. I will protect him because he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. So, Matthew 4, the temptation of Jesus, is a, is a contest, really, between God and, and Satan. A, a contest much like Job went through 
between God and Satan. Look at my faithful son. He will obey me. And God tests Jesus with three tests to see if God, see if Jesus will be faithful. And at the same time, these three tests are Satan tempting him to see if Jesus will be faithful and try and remove him, take him away from faithfulness. So ultimately, what's the point of this? What does it say to us? Predominantly, what it says to us is not something about us. Predominantly, what it says to us is something about Jesus. Jesus is the true son. Against Israel, Jesus is the true son of God because he has been faithful to God. He proved his faithfulness in obedience to Scripture. He proved his faithfulness in the midst of hunger. He proved his faithfulness in the risk, at risk of mortality. He proved his faithfulness in the midst of ignominy instead of glory. Jesus is the true and faithful son. It tells us something else. That Jesus, made like us, had to be tested like we are. That God tests his children. And given that Jesus was incarnate, God tested him. And he must pass that test to be a faithful son. Now notice, all of these temptations relate specifically to Jesus' incarnation. Jesus suffered hunger because he was incarnate as the son of glory before his incarnation. And after his exaltation, he suffers no hunger. He suffered hunger because he was incarnate. Satan says, throw yourself off the temple and God will provide his angels. If Jesus had lived by that promise of Satan, he would never have gone to the cross. The cross, the incarnation, required the death of Jesus. And then Satan promised him, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth if only you bow down and worship me. And after his incarnation, when after the cross, after the resurrection, Jesus is exalted above all nations. All of these temptations come to him at the beginning of his ministry to assess, to train him to survive the end of his ministry. He suffers hunger. He suffers the threat of death. He overcomes the temptation to take exaltation in his own hands. The message here is that Jesus is our Savior and can be because he's been a faithful son. To say that Jesus is God's son is to say that he's the special chosen one by God. He has a special relationship like father and son between himself and the father. But that requires of him, it requires obedience and faithfulness. And he passes that test. Now what does it say to us? It invites us to worship. It assures us that Jesus is the son of God who can give his life for our sins. What does it say about us? Hebrews tells us, well, he was a faithful son. We must be faithful sons. Hebrews tells us that we will face similar temptations as Jesus did. We can draw the principle that when we want to resist temptations, we must cite scripture as, as Jesus did. That Satan will use scripture to deceive us as he tried to use scripture to deceive Jesus. 
we can draw many principles, or Hebrews draws several principles about how this speaks to us. But Matthew doesn't draw those principles. What Matthew focuses on is this. Jesus, the incarnate one, is the true Son of God. He proves his identity, the true beloved of God. He proves his identity by succeeding where Israel failed. He proves his identity by succeeding where we often fail. So this morning, we reflect not on how we overcome temptation, but we celebrate Jesus who overcame temptation. And this morning, we look for principles not for our life, beyond this key principle. We come together to worship Jesus because he is the true son who overcame the temptations that Israel failed and that we fail. He is the true son, and as the true son, he can be our intermediary between the Father and us. Uh, let's pray together.